This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Tonight we're going to talk about staying sane in the midst of stress. Um, I imagine that this pertains to just about everyone in the room at one point or another. It happens to be a question that I've been fascinated with just about all my life. As a child, I was interested in the stories of heroes, as many of us are. Um, and as years went on, I found myself constantly going back to the question, how do people stay sane in the midst of stress? Um, if you're very fortunate, you find a question that generates a lifetime of work for you. I have that question. This is it. So tonight I'm going to talk about really two different, I'm going to have two different parts to the talk. The first is understanding what stress is and talking about the language of coping and what is good coping. This is the more sort of academic part of the talk, but it provides a common vocabulary for us all to work with. And then the second part, I'm going to talk about positive emotions and their role in stress and coping in positive emotion. And that will be a little bit more intriguing, I think. But I think we need part one in order to do part two. So the first question is defining stress. I would imagine that if I asked each of you in this room to define stress, you would each have some kind of definition. And I'm not sure how many different ones there would be, but there would be a number. But one of the most common ways is to define stress as a physiological response. This was actually done originally by Walter Kahn in the 1930s, and it continues to be a very important way to think of stress as an autonomic nervous system fight-or-flight response um, where the cortisol shoots up, heart rate increases, attention narrows, and the body is fully mobilized. Another way of talking about stress is something that happens to you. Um, and the major, the major approach that this was, uh, has been used for is life events. And I think many of you have seen life events measures. And I have here the items from the original life events checklist, which was uh, designed in 1967 by Holmes and Ray. And the death of a spouse was given the highest rating. And divorce, and don't you love this one, wife begins or stops work. <laughs> this is, shows you how questionnaires can become dated. Uh, foreclosure of a mortgage or loan and vacation. Each of these is given a different number of rating points. And the more points you have, the more at risk you're supposed to be for illness. Now, when people think about stress, how many people think about it as something that happens to them, an event or a situation that happens to you? Yeah, about a third of the room. All right. The problem, well, I'll, I'll go into this a little bit later. Another way of thinking about stress is as an imbalance when demands exceed resources. And this is very often taken from the engineering uh, metaphor, as when a bridge collapses. Um, it's also taken when you have a little bit more work to do than you can possibly manage, as in the image of the uh, person at the desk. Um, this imbalance idea, demands versus resources, it's used a lot in the, uh, in the work literature, in the occupational stress literature. How many people, when you think of stress, think of it this way? 
Yeah, a lot. Okay. <laughs> well, you're all right. <laughs> it's all these things. But there's something missing. What's missing is the characteristics of the person that make a difference in how stressful a situation may be. These include priorities and goals, values, beliefs, developmental history, psychological, physical, and social resources for coping. And let me just give you an example of this. Giving a public talk is sometimes used by social psychologists as a stressor because it's universally considered a very stressful experience. But some people do feel that it's very stressful. Others, however, think this is a great idea. What makes the difference is the personal history or the values or the goals or the person's resources. All of these characteristics of the person make the difference. That's why, for example, you can't judge even a divorce as 100 or 90 on the Holmes and Ray rating scale because for one member of the couple it may be 100 and for another it might be a 65 depending upon who's initiating the divorce and what's to be lost and what's to be gained. The person matters. Um, this was taken into account in a cognitive theory of stress. And this is where I'll just give you a little bit of theory. The key concepts here is that stress is contextual. It involves the person in a particular environment or situation. So you can never think of stress without thinking of a context for it, of what's happening and what's going on. Stress is a dynamic process. It isn't something that just happens and it's over. It unfolds over time. And the process is influenced by these two, uh, these two phenomena. One is cognitive appraisal, which I'm going to tell you about, and the other is coping. And with you, when you have this vocabulary, you will have a definition of stress that takes the person into account. A situation is stressful when you appraise it as a harm or challenge, it is personally meaningful, it matters to you, and it taxes or exceeds your resources for coping. So appraisal is a judgmental, evaluative process that we are always engaging in. When you are out in the world and doing things, you're constantly looking around without even being aware of it. Am I okay? Am I in danger? Is everything all right? Do I need to be alert? This appraisal process is an unconscious process that we engage in just routinely. So here's another example of a cognitive appraisal that you have the balance of demands and resources. And the first thing you ask is, what's happening? Am I okay? And what can I do? These are the questions. And it will be stressful if something happens that says I am not okay and that it's hard for me to do something about it and it matters. Without the mattering, it won't be stressful. And this is very important. The mattering is what makes the difference in the stress, in, in, in stress. Does this matter to me? If it doesn't matter, it will be much less stressful than if it does matter. So appraisals, these cognitive judgments, are tied to emotions. Harm or loss, something bad has happened, has anger, sadness, and guilt. Threat, something that bad might happen, has worry, fear, and anxiety. 
and challenge where there's an opportunity for mastery or gain, but there's some risk, excitement, eagerness, and some anxiety. The stress process is inherently emotional. There are emotions throughout. Um, I don't care where you are in the process, the beginning, the middle, or the end, there will be emotion. And that's a very important thing to remember. We all have stress in our lives. It's ubiquitous, but it varies in frequency from time to time, in intensity, and in duration. So one of the questions that we often ask is, what's normal? How much stress is normal? I was at a conference recently where I saw a wonderful way to illustrate this. Heart rate variability, which is a good analog for it. Now, this is a little test. We're, we're in a mini-med school, so here's a test. Can you tell which heart rate pattern is healthy? A, B, C, or D? How many people think A is? How many think people might think B is? And C? And D? OK, let's see. A is heart failure. You don't want that one. <laughs> B is heart failure. D is atrial fibrillation. We don't want that either. The one that's normal is C. And what I want to illustrate here is that this is sort of normal for stress, too. It's variable. It comes and it goes. Um, it has periods of intensity. It has periods of less intensity, more frequency, and less frequency. This is normal. What's normal in heart rate variability is normal in the stress in our lives. Um, if you're flat, it's sort of equivalent to heart failure. If there's no stress in your life, there's no engagement, nothing is happening. It's sort of ultimate boredom. <laughs> um, with B, with heart failure, there's, no, there's a regularity to it. It's not as though the person is involved. It's just there's a regular beat to it without the person being involved in terms of your own beliefs or values. Um, atrial fibrillation is just random and massive, uh, D. You wouldn't want to have stress like that. That would be exhausting. And also, it's not responsive, again, to your own appraisal and coping processes. It's just happening, a lot happening. But C shows this pattern of irregularity, which is normal. So it's normal to have stress, some stress on some days, more on others, less on third days. It's normal to have it go up and to go down and to vary in frequency and intensity. So it's variable and it's unpredictable. The big question is, how is it managed? I happen to be reading a book about Einstein. I don't know if any of you have seen the Einstein biography. But there's this great conversation that goes on between Einstein and Bohr about the uncertainty principle and the certainty of the theory of relativity. I don't understand the physics, but it rang true that what they were talking about in terms of physics is also true about stress. It's variable and unpredictable. This is the uncertainty principle in physics. I love it when I can connect one field to another. The connection may not hold true, but it makes sense to me, so I use it. <laughs> Uh, coping enters the picture. That's how it is managed. So here, again, if I were to ask you all about coping and your definitions, I think there would be about at least 15 different definitions of coping. I'm going to sort of 
narrow them down to this one definition. Coping refers to the thoughts and actions that people use to manage demands that are appraised as stressful. So there are certain elements in this definition that are really important to notice. First, it's thoughts and actions, what you think and what you do. And second, it's manage, not succeed in vanquishing, not being successful, it's efforts to manage. Some of the most stressful circumstances that people endure cannot be resolved. They cannot be made to go away. But the efforts to cope with it are managing, are to manage. And it's managing, it's the efforts to manage that is what coping is about. And that are appraised as stressful. In other words, you're not going to be doing these things unless you have appraised the situation as one that is potentially uh, harmful, threatening, or challenging. Coping, like the whole stress process, is dynamic. It changes as the situation unfolds. What you do at time A may be different than what you do at time B. And it's multidimensional, and I'll have more to say about that. But for these reasons, I have to say that when I see self-help books that give you five little strategies for coping with stress, and this is the answer to sanity, I cringe. Coping is complex because people are complex, because the situations we're in are complex. There are no simple answers. But I'm hoping to give you the vocabulary to at least understand what we, how we do it. So there are two major categories of coping. One is called emotion-focused coping. And it's used to regulate distress emotions. Remember I told you how when you appraise a situation as harmful or threatening, there are these negative emotions, anger or guilt or worry or anxiety. So emotion-focused coping helps regulate those emotions. There is distancing, where you distract yourself, put a problem out of your mind. There's humor. There's seeking emotional support. These are just examples. They're looking on the bright side of things. Um, there are many, many different forms of emotion-focused coping. These are some of the most common. How many of these seem familiar to you? How many of you would say you do them? Right. So that's emotion-focused coping. When you're doing that, you're doing that kind of coping. There's also escape avoidance. That's a form of emotion-focused coping that's considered maladaptive. Daydreaming, eating, using alcohol or drugs. Um, people engage in that. Most people who use this form of coping are also depressed. But there are healthy forms of emotion-focused coping, too. And then the other side is problem-focused coping. This manages the problem that's underlying the distress. So you have instrumental coping, literally, where you might take an instrument and fix something. Um, Problem-solving, information-gathering. Um, these forms of coping speak to people who are trained in decision-making, who have MBAs, who have, you know, are, are very logical and linear. Um, but many of us who aren't all those things also use these. These are the kinds of coping that are used to try to solve the problem that's underlying the distress. Now, what we have learned in our research is that people use both kinds of coping in virtually every stressful situation. It isn't one or the other, it's both. So there are four general principles of effective coping in dealing with complex chronic stressful problems. And I particularly take these chronic and complex problems because these are the ones that get us down. The ones that come and go like a flat tire that you can get fixed, that's, that's piece of cake. It's these kinds of stresses, the ones that are chronic and complex, 
that cause us a lot of difficulty. And these are the ones I want to focus on. First, and I'm, I'll unpack each of these a little bit, but first, you want to focus on a specific situation rather than on total co- stressful context. You want to ask what made it stressful, distinguish changeable and unchangeable aspects, and fit the coping to the situation. Now let's go over each one of these. First, focusing on a specific recent event that was stressful rather than on the whole large issue. It's a good way to begin. So take a global situation. Um, I'm sure many of the people in this room have had to deal with an elderly parent or grandparent who needs caregiving. This is a stressful condition. It's a situation, it's a number of situations that stretch over time. So what you want to do is rather than say, how do I cope with caregiving? That's, that's too huge. What you do is sort of chunk it down and you look at a specific stressful situation, remembering that stress is contextual. So let's say that she forgot to take her meds on Wednesday. That's a stressful situation that's representative of the global. It's a specific situation. And it matters, so it's stressful. So the second question is, what made this stressful for me? This helps define the coping tasks. There's a danger to her health if she doesn't take her meds. This could be the beginning of serious cognitive decline. How will I manage to care for her? So this is what happens when you look at the specific event and say, what makes it stressful? And here come the emotions, worry, fear, and anxiety. So identify which aspects of the situation you can do something about and which ones you cannot. This is very familiar to you, any of you who know the serenity prayer. God, give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things that could be changed, that should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish one from the other. And this, I was interested to learn, was attributed to Reinhold Neighbor. Anyway, let's go back to she forgot to take her meds on Wednesday. There's a danger to her health if she doesn't take her meds. That was one of the things that made it stressful. What can be done and what has to be accepted? If you were in that situation, could you identify something that could be done for the person who forgot to, for the the elderly parent who forgot to take her meds? Anyone have an idea? Yes. Okay, a beeping or a timer. Okay, that's problem-focused coping. Anything else? Yes. Okay, call her to remind her. So that's something that can be done, and that's problem-focused coping. Is there anything else? Yes. The question was, wouldn't it be better to use blood pressure rather than heartbeat? I was using the heart rate variability to give an example of different patterns, but you could do it with blood pressure, too. Yes. Are there any other suggestions about the elderly parent? Yes. Sometimes she's not going to take them and accept that. So in this case, a number of problem-focused strategies were identified for the parts that could be changed and acceptance for the parts that couldn't be changed. And we could do the same thing. This could be the beginning of serious cognitive decline. How will I manage to care for her? Does anyone want to take a stab at that? What can be changed? What can be done? Yes? All right, finding a service in the community to come help. Problem-focused coping. Thank you. Any other suggestions? Yes. All right, have the mother see a neurologist and get a checkup. Very good suggestion. 
All right, what about what has to be accepted? What do you do there? Yes. This is a loss. And ex- I'm sorry, and it's a loss for you and your mother. Thank you. Yes. All right, so sort of be prepared for things getting worse or for things happening and accept it. So again, what I've seen is you've come up with problem-focused strategies for those part of the situations that could be changed or something can be done about, and acceptance and mental preparation for the parts that have to be accepted. So those are very good examples of problem-focused and emotion-focused coping. And it's also a very good example of taking a huge problem, focusing on a specific aspect of it, and figuring out what can be changed and what cannot. Yes. The question is, would prayer be acceptance or problem solving? Um, It depends on how you view prayer. Um, Some people view pray for divine intervention. And in that case, prayer could be problem focused. Um, If it's just to ease your own distress and to ask for comfort, it would be emotion focused. And that's a very good point. Some strategies can be both. Um, These aren't separate categories entirely because sometimes, like public speaking again, sometimes people are very anxious before speaking. The best way to deal with the anxiety is to start speaking, which is the problem. So the problem-focused coping helps regulate emotion. So, you know, but it's a vocabulary. It's a way of thinking and classifying what your thoughts and actions are. So what we've just been talking about is matching the coping to the situation. For controllable aspects, everything that was named here was problem-focused coping was a good match. And for aspects that have to be accepted, emotion-focused coping. Now, what happens when these are crossed is that you might try problem-focused coping in a situation that has to be accepted. So let's just say you're trying to fix something that can't be fixed. What's going to be the reaction? Yes. Frustration, exactly. It also is associated with poor psychological, physical health. Um, people who, some people are disposition, dispositionally oriented towards fixing things, anything, everything. I'm sure what, many of us have had interactions with people who just want to fix things. When you say, I have a problem, I'm going to fix it for you. Well, not all problems are fixable. And it can be frustrating to the person who's trying to fix it. And if you're the person who's seeking the comfort of another person, it can be frustrating to you that that person is trying to fix a problem that you know can't be fixed. And the same way, if you do emotion-focused coping when situations can be fixed, what can happen? You can forget, you can neglect to take action that could be life-saving. So it's very important to do the appraisal accurately of what can be changed and what cannot and then to fit the right coping to it. So it's really a two-stage process. So in a nutshell, that's effective coping. All right, part two, positive emotion and the stress process. Are you kidding? (laughs) People say positive emotion and stress? What are you talking about, Susan? Well, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. First of all, when we think about stress, we think about distress. And distress is important. When I'm talking about positive emotion, I don't want you to forget 
that distress is a part of the stress process. It's always there. And distress is important. It affects the endocrine system, the immune system, the cardiovascular system, the digestive system. And I'm sure if I asked Dr. Hughes, she would tell me six more systems it affects. It also affects family functioning, work functioning, and health behaviors. Distress is important. It's a part of the stress process, and it's there. So how does positive emotion get into the picture? Well, I'm now going to take you on a tale of, dis- a, a tale of or describe for you, a tale of, discru- of discovery. Um, this is where the research that I've been involved with over the last 15 or 20 years comes into play. And I have to tell you, as a researcher, it is so exciting to have one of these tales of discovery to share. So the program of research I'm describing has to do with caregivers. And there were three big studies. The, the major one was a study of gay men whose partners had AIDS. This was done during the 1990s, before there were the um, antiretrovirals that are effective for the treatment of AIDS. And caregiving was an incredibly stressful experience. Then we have maternal caregivers, that's mothers or um, grandmothers or um, other women who are the mother substitutes for children with HIV and other chronic illness. And then patients with advanced AIDS or cancer and their family caregivers. So these are three different kinds of caregiving situations. And what I'm going to tell you about comes from these studies. As I mentioned, caregiving and HIV AIDS in the early 1990s was very, very stressful. First of all, it meets all the criteria I mentioned earlier. It's highly meaning personally. You have someone with whom you are in a committed relationship who is dying of AIDS. The demands at this time were unrelenting. I'm not sure how many of you were familiar with AIDS in the 1980s and the 90s, but the disease course was horrific and challenging in every possible way. And the ill partner's health deteriorated relentlessly. There wasn't really anything you could do to stop it. And then some caregivers were themselves HIV positive. This was a study I undertook, was funded, oh my goodness, 17 years ago now. Um, Time has sort of sped. Um, There were 314 caregivers in this study. um, Or 314 participants. There were 86 caregivers who were positive. 167 who were negative, and 161 who were HIV positive but not caregivers. This group was the one that I was most interested in, the HIV positive caregivers, because they had two things going on, their own serostatus and caregiving. And I thought if we could learn how these people stay sane, we will learn some great wisdom. We had to have the other two groups to serve as comparison groups, one to control for being HIV positive and the other to control for being a caregiver. And that way, whatever effects we saw in the group on the left, we would know whether it was associated with caregiving or with being HIV positive. Now, in this period, there was something called a Kaplan-Meier curve that was used to predict how long people would live, and the average was around two years from time of diagnosis with AIDS. And what was so profoundly upsetting to me was that the predictions were accurate. Um, The disease just ticked along at that time. And sure enough, 58 of the positive caregivers became bereaved, and 98 of the HIV-negative caregivers became bereaved. The picture has changed dramatically since then, I am very happy to report. 
Um, we assess these men a lot. We assess them every two months for two years, and then every six months for three additional years. So we um, both psychosocial interviews and physical exams. So we had lots and lots of data for up to five years. And what I'm going to tell you about are the data that just have to do with mood. That's all. We had positive mood items such as felt on top of the world, particularly excited, I was happy, and neg negative mood. I was lonely, I felt sad, couldn't get going. Now, these are scores on depressed mood before and after bereavement. The CESD is a widely used measure of depressive symptoms, and the scores you see here for the caregivers are one to two standard deviations above the general population, which you see in the line that goes along the bottom. This is typical of caregiving and bereavement um, in a general population. People get depressed. It's not easy. And this is what it looked like for the next three years. They stayed one to two, one and a half deviations above the general population. And again, if any of you have been through bereavement, or any of your parents or loved ones have been, you'll know that people remain sad and blue and lonely. They will not be clinically depressed, but their mood will be subdued for a long time. This is normal, a normal response to tremendous loss. This is another measure of negative mood before and after bereavement. It's called the Bradburn. And what's interesting about this is that you have to do a little bit of uh, bridging in your mind. Remember that these men were depressed, so this negative mood represents a depressed pattern. And this is what boggled our mind, the positive mood. This measure measured both positive and negative mood. And what we found was that while the men were experiencing negative mood, they were also experiencing positive mood. If you see the lines in... Um, dark red, I'm not sure exactly what color to call that, magenta. <laughs> um, that's the positive mood. And you'll see that they were experiencing those moods at almost the same frequency as the negative moods. This was totally a surprise, complete surprise. And the only time there's a separation is around the time of the death of the partner, but even then they're experiencing positive moods with less frequency, but they're still there. We happen to have three more years of data. And this is how it looked going out over years three, four, and five. So this is during the period when they're still experiencing high levels of depressed symptoms, depressed mood. They're also experiencing positive mood. Fortunately, we had a third measure to look at because some people might say it was a fluky measure that you, that you used. It's called the Positive States of Mind. It was developed here at UCSF by Marty Horowitz and his colleagues. And it's quite different. It measures states of mind, like focused attention. I was feeling able to attend to a task you want or need to without many distractions from within yourself. Restful repose, feeling relaxed without distractions or excessive tensions. And sharing, being able to commune with others in an empathic, close way, as in walking, talking, or just being together. And this is what we found with this measure. The community norm is at 12. The community, by the way, the norm was university students, so I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but anyway. And again, that magenta line is the bereaved caregivers. You see that they are experiencing positive states of mind, even though 
they are depressed. And this is what it looked like for the next three years. So this information sort of knocked our socks off. We were completely surprised. What were these positive emotions doing here? So the first thing that people said to me, oh, Susan, you live in San Francisco. Everything is different in San Francisco. So I had a friend, a colleague in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I asked her if she would piggyback the same measure on her study of parents whose children were newly diagnosed with serious illness. She found the same thing. And then we looked in the literature and found out that it had been found in studies of spinal cord injury, death of a child, and spousal bereavement. Um, It had been noted before, but no one paid attention to it. And then since then, we have replicated it in our other two studies of caregivers. So it's a robust finding. It's really there. People experience positive emotions during times of intense stress. One explanation. I get sad and happy within minutes of each other. So you must be a Gemini, right? No, bipolar. (laughs) This is what it's like in someone's real life. This is a quotation from one of the men in our study. There's a duality in my life. There's the hole caused by Jim's death, and yet there's also the ability to enjoy life. I just need to accept the fact that both aspects are there and that they can coexist. So we have positive emotions. There's no question they're there. Do they matter? And I think one of the reasons they were disregarded in previous studies was that the assumption was that they don't matter then there is evidence that they do matter, and it's growing. Studies show that they predict mortality in the general population and disease. And let me just give you a few examples. Um, This is a study of a 10-year study of community-dwelling elders, and the participants were 4,000 African-American and white community-dwelling men and women aged 65 to 105 at baseline, 105, and entering a a longitudinal study. Um, The survival analysis used the 3,600 participants with complete data. And they controlled, this was a very well-controlled study for age, male sex, African-American race, being unmarried, less than ninth grade education, low income, cognitive impairment, functional impairment, all those things were controlled for. And what they found was that positive mood, but not negative mood, remained a significant predictor of mortality. Now, the assumption has always been that negative uh, mood is what kills. Um, but they found that it was positive mood that mattered. Not that it would predict death, but that it predicts survival. Um, it was a negative predictor. In other words, the more positive mood you had, the longer you lived. But negative mood didn't have anything to do with longevity. Another study. How many of you have heard of the nun study? This is a favorite of mine because it sort of happened serendipitously. Um, these were handwritten biographies of a 100 autobiographies of 180 uh, Catholic nuns composed when they were 22 years of age and just entering the convent. And these narratives were scored for emotional content many years later and related to survival when they were between the ages of 75 and 95. And what was done was to count the negative and positive words in the narratives. Negative emotions did not predict survival. Absence of emotions did not predict survival. What did? the positive emotion words. And here's the last one, I promise you, but I just think these studies are so interesting. A two-year prospective cohort study 
This one was done of older Mexican-Americans, again, controlling for all these variables. And the results. There was a direct relationship between positive affect scores at baseline and survival two years later. The conclusion. Our results support the concept that positive affect or emotional well-being is different from the absence of depression or negative affect. Positive affect seems to protect individuals against physical declines in old age. I didn't write that. They did. Um, This is what's emerging in the literature, that positive affect, which is another word for emotion or mood, that these, these positive emotions or positive affects may be what is the critical factor in protecting people? Yes. The question has to do with Martin Seligman's work in positive psychology, and he has interventions that he is using to change people's um, affect. Um, and I can talk a little bit about that later. But yes, that, that is so. The question is, can you change? <laughs> Um, there's another one study I just want to show you because this one has an endearing quality to it. It has to do with the risk of the common cold. It isn't mortality. It's just getting sick with a common cold. And Sheldon Cohen is one of the most distinguished social health psychologists in the country, also a colleague and friend. And he took 334 healthy volunteers who were assessed for their tendency to express positive or negative emotions. They were infected with the cold virus, the rhinovirus. Then they were monitored in quarantine. Can you imagine? I think this study was done in the UK. They were monitored in quarantine for five days for development of a common cold. And at 20 days, 28 days, blood was collected for serological testing. Um, they also collected Kleenex tissues um, and weighed them before and after use. And that was used as an objective sign of cold symptoms. That's what I love about this study. I mean, how do you, how do you talk about that? Weigh the tissue. So anyway, um, negative emotional style. Here it's shown in terms of what did it differ. Did people high, medium, and low in negative emotional style have a different percent of colds, either by objective or subjective criteria? And the answer was no. There was no relationship. It didn't matter whether you were high in negative affect or low in negative affect. The cold went on independent of affect. Of course, I'm setting this one up, and here's what we see. With positive emotional style, a beautiful correlation. The higher you were in positive emotional style, the fewer percent colds you reported, the fewer symptoms you reported. The lower you were in positive emotional style, the sicker you were. So it's another example of how positive emotions seem to be doing something that negative emotions aren't. Now, one of the interesting things is that many of our measures that are used in psychological research, measures of depression, include positive items, and they reverse score them as though they are the opposite of the negative emotion. So if you score, yes, I felt happy, three on, you know, on a four-point scale, it gets reverse scored to add up to your depression score. What we're saying is that you shouldn't do that, that the positive emotions need to be treated separately, and that measures of depression that have these positive items in them that are then reverse scored shouldn't be there. Yes. Let's give it a try. The question... <laughs> The question was whether people who are just have positive emotions will be more protected around pe- other people with colds during the cold season. Um, 
this is what these findings suggest. But I'm reluctant to say, just go around and be happy, and you know, I'll get to that in a minute. All right, the comment has to do that when you're feeling better, maybe you're exercising better, exercising more and eating better and just having health, better health behaviors. The whole issue of how these emotions, what the mechanisms of action are to infection and to disease and to survival is, is one of great interest right now. And you've just identified several very possible pathways. It isn't just being magically happy. It's that when you're feeling good, you do other things. But being happy may also have some effect on your direct effect on your endocrine system and your immune system that we're not aware of yet. It is being studied. We are studying it. So um, Sheldon Cohen's comment on all of this is that we need to take more seriously the possibility that positive emotional style is a major player in disease risk. Um, now Sheldon Cohen, as I mentioned, he's a, he's a distinguished psychologist, the winner of the APA, American Psychological Association Scientific Award, um, and he's saying these things. And in fact, we were at a meeting where I first presented some of the data I just showed you, and he said to me, Susan, he asked the question that was asked by you, do you think we can change people's, emo can we change behavior, change emotion patterns? So this was a question that he asked, the same question you asked. So that takes us to this question. How do people generate those positive emotions when things are going badly? The first, I want to say, I'm not talking about Pollyanna. I'm not saying, just be happy, go around all the time with a big smile and everything will be fine. Not what I'm saying. I'm also not saying, deny everything that's going on in your life that's bad and just be happy for that reason. It's neither Pollyanna and it's not denial. What we do come to is a third form of coping, which I have called meaning-focused coping. And this is a kind of coping that's different from problem-focused and emotion-focused coping. Those two forms of coping are generally used to manage distress. And what we have found is that the kinds of emo coping that people use to generate positive emotions are different. They're not the same as the ones that are used to regulate distress and they're meaning-focused, and I'll explain more what I mean by that. So first of all, we have the basis of meaning. This goes back, remember, to the appraisal. I said values, goals, and beliefs. This has to do with meaning. Values tell you what matters. If you value something highly, it matters more to you. If you value it less, it matters less. Goals are the purpose, uh, give you a sense of purpose of what you're trying to, what, what what's important to you and what you're striving for, and beliefs about the self, the world, spiritual and religious beliefs. This is what I mean by meaning. Again, meaning like the word stress and coping, there are many different definitions, but when I'm speaking of meaning, I'm using it in these terms. It refers to values, beliefs, and goals. It doesn't refer to what the computer um, can tell, tell you, <laughs> which is, what is the meaning of life? I don't know, the computers are down. So the first strategy in this area is called goal revision. And the key to this one is to relinquish untenable goals and substitute new goals that are both realistic and meaningful. The relinquishing untenable goals, that's part one of the serenity prayer. You know, grant me the wisdom to know what I can't change. But what's important is part two here. Substitute new goals that are both realistic and meaningful. What this does, it helps sustain a sense of control it creates a renewed sense of purpose, and it allows hope and optimism with respect to new goals. 
And now I'm going to give you examples. And these coping strategies that I'm going to be describing, I'm giving you examples from narratives from the men in our study, or the women, depending on which study. So this one is Rob. Rob refers to himself in the third person in the first paragraph, and then he switches. Rob, look at you. You're still here. You can't do all the things you used to do. You used to have all the diamonds and gold and all the fun you wanted. You can't do that anymore. Those days are gone. And so I try to think about what now? What do I do now with the time I have left in my actions, in my spiritual life? Pray, pray more, be nicer to other people, give. So can you see here where he gave up his previous goals and where he substituted new ones? Pray, pray more, be nicer to other people, and give. He relinquished untenable goals and substituted new ones. And what's interesting to me is that he switches from the third person, Rob, to the first person, I, in the process. Here's an example of a person who didn't do the goal revision. The interviewer asked, how did you spend your day? And this man said, moping, depressed, trying to get as close to the life I had before I got sick. Can you see the difference between these two? Here's someone who was trying to achieve the goals that he had before he got sick. And he didn't give them up. And he says it, I'm moping and I'm depressed. Strategy two, infuse ordinary events with positive meaning. Now this is an interesting strategy. This was actually suggested to us by the men in our study. Shortly after we began the study, some of the men said, Susan, all you're asking us about are the stressful events of our caregiving. You're asking us about all these hard things. You know, good things happen. Ask us about those too. And besides which, we don't like ending these interviews on a down note. Well, one of the great advantages of doing a longitudinal study where recruitment takes almost three years is that at the beginning you have some leeway. So we inserted a question that said, tell me about an event, something positive that helped you get through the day. And what's so interesting about that question, we actually asked it 1,787 times, I believe, over the course of the study. And in 99% of those cases, these men had a positive event to tell us. Now, I want to mention that once we asked them about these events, we became an intervention study because we sensitized the men to their positive events, and then they came and told us about them. I just fess up, that's what happened. But the point was, was that they did have these events, and they did tell us about them. And let me just show you a little bit about how these work. First of all, these events provide a breather from distress. Um, it's almost like if you have your muscles tensed, you have to let go for a minute in order to continue the tension. In the same way, if you're experiencing a level of distress that's very intense, you need a relief from it. These events provide that. And they also help restore resources. They help you feel more energized, um, more motivated. That breather really makes a difference. And here is an example of one of these events. It's a hoot, doing actually nothing. We're like an old married couple. He's on the sofa, I'm on the chair the old TV along the wall, just being there with him, being together. We do nothing except talk, feed each other. We make something to eat, play with the cats. It's calming. Telling him he's cute no matter what his hair looks like. It's just like being with an old shoe. There's no outside world, just us. 
And here's one from a very different person. This woman is a mother of a child with HIV who is, um, she happens to have been on welfare at the time. And this is what she said. Yeah, it may sound stupid, but all the things my son wanted, the wrestling stuff, I found everything on sale. Things that were $40, I got for $10. And these are things that he asked me for. I felt really good. And like I really did something good then. I went down and I took care of what I had to take care of, like I really accomplished something. So these are very ordinary events that people take, but they just sort of infuse them with meaning. There were stories of men who were by the bedsides of their partners in the hospital, and they looked out and saw a sunset. They had seen that sunset every day for weeks, but that one day the sunset took on a special meaning. It was especially beautiful. It could be a kind word that someone said to them at work. You did a good job. They will reflect on that and dwell on it. So it's taking an ordinary event and pausing and living with it and dwelling with it and infusing it with meaning. So the third strategy is benefit finding. Reflect on growth in personal strengths and resources. This reinforces positive beliefs about the self and the world. And here is an example. Um, this is an exit interview. I have learned that I am a stronger person than I probably ever imagined and that I could have more resources within me than I could have ever imagined. I would have never chosen to go through the loss of him, but it has been a very positive thing for my life because I am a much stronger, much better person in going through the side of it all. I would say 80% of the caregivers said things like this as I ended the study. These were men, mostly in their 30s and 40s, for whom caregiving was completely off time. You don't expect to be caregiving at that time of life. And they had also very often come from family relationships that were troubled. They had not had the experience of feeling that they could make this kind of contribution and that they were so efficacious and so competent. And they actually felt good about that. And remember, this is feeling good while feeling bad. And the fourth strategy is focus on what really matters. Um, this is not rocket science. This is the kind of thing that I think we have all experienced, that when you go through something very difficult, people will often say, it changed my perspective. I have a new perspective. I have, I, I've rearranged my priorities. I'm getting rid of the things that don't matter to me, and I'm just focusing on what matters. The next narrative I'm going to read says this in a way that my dry academic words could never. The most stressful daily challenges are the severe night and day stress, sweats that John gets. Let's go with last night. Like all other nights, I bring John back upstairs around 10 p.m. I settle him in, and within minutes he begins. It's beyond sweating. Night sweats doesn't describe what's going on. That word, the word that comes to mind is that he is leaking. For the next two, five, eight hours, he sweats through a long sleeve shirt and a terry cloth bathrobe, and also through a pillow and the sheets. This process can take 20 minutes to half an hour, at which point I disturb him. But he's appreciative of getting out of these wet things and into a dry shirt and bathrobe. He'll settle down and relax a little, and I take a cold cloth to his forehead and wrist and wait anywhere for 20 to 30 minutes until the next episode, and we repeat the process. On a good night, it's four times. Last night, we did it 10 times. The thought that comes to mind is that I'm glad we have a heavy-duty washer and dryer on the premises. 
Personally, I feel proud, pleased that I can comfort him and have the energy, and God knows where that is coming from to cope. The event shows our tremendous love for each other. We are still making our love for each other the focal point. The question I would ask each of you is, could he have done this if he weren't focusing on that? Could he have done the, been up all these nights, night after night, doing this work if he hadn't focused on what really mattered to him? So for you, I have something for you. What I'd like you to do is to take a moment and engage in one of these strategies, the one about a positive and meaningful event. And the first thing I'd like you to do, this is just going to take two minutes, is to reflect on a time in the last day, maybe two days, when something made you feel good, when you, had a, you were happy or felt gratitude or pleasure, some positive emotion. Then I would like you to close your eyes for a moment and think about what happened, what was going on. Who was there? What was happening? What was it that made you feel good? How would people characterize the mood after I finished reading the narrative about that man who was up all night with his partner? It was sort of down, wasn't it? It's a very moving narrative, and it's, it always evokes a great deal of sadness and other kinds of thoughts. Now, when I asked you to think about a positive event, you were, coming, you were in that subdued mood, some more than others. What did thinking about the positive event do to your mood, just thinking about it? Did it have any effect at all? How, for how many people did it sort of change your mood? All right, what you've just had is a major coping intervention. All right, then the next thing you did, how hard was it to uh, come up with an event? Let me just ask, how, from, how many people was it very easy? Just about everyone, all right. And I assume that your days are like mine. They have lots of things going on and a lot of stressful things, so this was in the midst of that, you had these events. All right, now what happened when you turned to your neighbor and talked about it? Pardon? Sharing. What did the sharing do? Pardon? Lightened it. Yes. Validated it. All right. And what we say is that the sharing amplifies the event. Does that make sense to you? It makes it more. And this is a very lovely way to elevate mood when things are difficult. If there's no one to share it with, just meditating, if I can use that word, I'm in the center of integrative medicine where we use that word a lot. If you meditate on a positive event just before you go to sleep, I think you'll find it a nice way to slip out of the day. If at other times of the day, there's someone for you to share it with, someone who has your well-being and inter is interested in your well-being, someone whom you trust, who you care about, who will be pleased to hear about it. If you share an event, you will basically amplify its effects. It will become more. And for those few moments, no matter what else has been going on in your day, your physiological measures will reflect 
a more positive emotional pattern, they will be easier. Um, your mood will be lifted. It will give you a breather. It doesn't make the other stuff go away, but it gives you a breather, a break from it. And that is one of the profound lessons that we've learned from this research. It was taught to us by the men in our study. And I thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.